great joy to be here, and I know that God is going to bless the Juventutum chapter at Franciscan University because they accomplished something that very few student groups have been able to do anywhere in the Western world. You got the administration of the university to invite the crazy people from the Colbe Center to give a presentation on campus with the permission of the authorities. So God is going to bless you. I know he will bless you greatly. And that's because this presentation, as you can see from the title, is about something that is absolutely fundamental, the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation, the foundation of the holy Catholic faith. But uh, before we get into it, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself so you can understand how in God's providence I was called into this apostolate. This is a picture of me taken with my father a few years ago. <laughs> my, my dad was the son of a Baptist minister in Wales in Great Britain. So he was brought up in a conservative Baptist home. But when he went to university in England, the universities were much more progressive and his professors enlightened him. They told him, we do not need the fairy tales in the book of Genesis any longer because science has enlightened us. Evolution can explain the origins of man and the universe without God, without any supernatural agency. And so my father was robbed of his faith in traditional Christianity and became a secular humanist. But being an idealistic person, he went to work for the United Nations at the very beginning. He became an assistant secretary general. Then he became co-administrator of the United Nations Development Program. And after 25 years with the United Nations, he was knighted by the Queen of England for his work. Now, my mother was American, so it was very strange all of a sudden having people calling up and asking to speak to Lady Owen. <laughs> but that was a passing phase, as you'll hear in a moment. Because after my father retired from the United Nations, he was rather disillusioned because he looked at the world and he saw that all the problems of the world were much worse than when the United Nations was started. Why was that? Well, once again, he turned to the intelligentsia that he knew, and they had the answer. They said, the reason the United Nations is not making any headway in solving the world's problems is it's not going to the root of all the world's problems, overpopulation. Too many people, they said, that's why we have wars and social and economic injustice and pollution and all these problems. Cut down on the number of people. Then we'll have enough to go around. All our problems will be solved. So once again, my father deferred to the consensus view among the intelligentsia that he knew. And he accepted to become the first ever secretary general of International Planned Parenthood Federation. At the very time when IPPF changed its position on abortion, 
and became the world's number one provider of abortion as well as contraception and sex education. And my father held that position for just about a year when he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in London when I was just 16 years old. Now, I do not have time to go into all the details of my conversion or to explain to you why I believe, for good reason, that at the last moment, our Lord gave my father the opportunity to see the truth about his life and to repent, and that he did repent, and as he went down into the depths of purgatory, he began to pray for me. But what I can tell you, which is indisputable, is that less than two years after my father died, even though I had been brought up with no prayer, no Bible, no church, nothing. I received the gift of faith, and I was baptized, confirmed, and made my first Holy Communion as a Catholic in the Princeton University Chapel, where I was enrolled as a freshman. Now, at that time, the chaplains at Princeton University were Jesuit priests, and so they gave me a book to learn the doctrines of the Catholic faith, the Dutch Catechism. Now, we call it the Dutch Cataclysm because this is the book that has practically annihilated the Catholic faith in the once vibrant Catholic community of the Netherlands, which sent a disproportionate number of missionaries all over the world, including here to the United States, who gave their lives to spread the true faith. But there's a theme that runs through the Dutch cataclysm, and it's this. We live now in a scientific age, and science has enlightened us so that we can understand everything in our faith in a new and deeper way. It sounds great, but then Father Schillebex and company proceed to sow doubt in the mind of the reader about everything from the inerrancy of scripture the existence of angels, the historical reality of Adam and Eve, the original sin, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of our Lord, and on and on. So it's an absolute miracle that I survived the Dutch cataclysm and came into the church at all. Unfortunately, the Dutch Catholics, most of them did not survive. When we were in the Netherlands giving a seminar about five years ago, our friends told us that maybe 2% of Catholics in the Netherlands go to Holy Mass on Sunday. But somewhere in the depths of my being, I never could accept this idea that science could learn anything that was true that would contradict what the church had taught in faith or morals from the time of the apostles. And I was amazed to discover later on that at the very time when my father was being robbed of his faith, because there was nobody in his environment to tell him the other side of the story about evolution, St. Maximilian Kolbe was writing articles and sending them all over the world showing that the emperor of evolution was not wearing any clothes that there actually wasn't any sound scientific evidence for this idea that molecules turned into human bodies over billions of years of the same kinds 
of material processes that are going on now. So eventually, we founded, in obedience to the exhortation of Pope Pius XII in Humani Generis, which we're going to look at in a minute, we founded the Kolbe Center for the Study of Creation to provide a forum for Catholic theologians, philosophers, and natural scientists like St. Maximilian Kolbe, who defend the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation and who point out the fatal flaws in the molecules-to-man evolution hypothesis in its theistic and in its atheistic forms. Now, in the world today, there are two different accounts of the origins of man in the universe that are competing for your generation. One is the account that God gave of what he did when he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain, and when there were no human witnesses to what he did. Now, according to God's account, he created everything by fiat, supernaturally. He simply willed into existence the heavens and the earth and all the different kinds of creatures for us in our first parents. He created Adam, body and soul. He created Eve literally from Adam's body, and he placed them as the king and queen of a perfectly beautiful, complete and harmonious universe that was totally free, not only from human death, but from deformity, disease, struggle for existence, man harming natural disasters or anything of that kind. And according to God's account of how he created the world, when he finished creating our first parents, St. Adam and St. Eve, he stopped creating new kinds of creatures because he was done. He created everything for us. And so according to God's revelation, the natural order that we are living in now, what the doctors call the order of providence, only began when the entire work of creation was finished. And therefore, according to God's revelation, it doesn't matter how smart we are, it doesn't matter how wonderful our technology is, we cannot study the universe as it is now and extrapolate from that all the way back to the beginning to explain how everything came to be. Because the whole work of creation was supernatural and it was finished with the creation of Adam and Eve at the beginning. Now competing with God's account of how he created the world is man's attempt to account for it without God's revelation. And according to the evolution story, some matter came into existence billions of years ago and then through the same kinds of material processes that are going on right now, that matter came alive and turned into all the different kinds of plants and animals and eventually even into human bodies. So according to this account, everything is just a natural development through the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. There never was any supernatural work of creation. There's no distinction between creation and providence. It's just one continuous natural process. Now, there is absolutely no doubt 
which of these two accounts the Holy Catholic Church has believed and proclaimed from the beginning. And it was summed up very beautifully by Pope Leo XIII not very long ago, because Pope Leo already in 1880 was very alarmed that the Freemasons and the communists and other enemies of God and the church were already trying to destroy the foundations of Catholic civilization by introducing legal divorce into Catholic countries like Italy where it was prohibited by law. And so Pope Leo wrote an entire encyclical letter, Arcanum Divinae, on holy marriage, sent it to every bishop in the world, and told the bishops, you must defend holy marriage on this foundation. And then he wrote these words. He said, we record what is known to all and cannot be denied by anyone that God on the sixth day of creation, having made man from the slime of the earth and having breathed into his face the breath of life, gave him a companion whom he miraculously took from the side of Adam when he was locked in sleep. So the successor of St. Peter tells the bishops of the whole world, you can only defend holy marriage on this foundation, that God created one man for one woman for life from the beginning of creation, and therefore marriage is of divine institution. It is not of human origin. But we all know that what Pope Leo XIII said was known to all and cannot be denied by anyone is today known to very few of your generation. And let's face it, it's denied by most Catholic teachers today. So what happened? Well, what happened is over the last 141 years, through a process that I'm going to unveil for you in this presentation, most Catholic intellectuals became convinced that they had to combine these two contradictory accounts of the origins of man and the universe into a hybrid, which usually goes by the name of theistic evolution. Now, this comes in a variety of forms. At one end of the spectrum is the very popular view of Dr. Ken Miller at Brown University. According to Dr. Miller, God created some matter 13.7 billion years ago, and then that matter came alive and diversified into all the different kinds of living things until a subhuman primate reached a certain stage of evolution and then God put a soul into one or more evolved subhuman primates, and that's how human beings came into existence. But according to him, everything in between was just a natural process of evolution using the same material processes that are going on now. Now, at the other end of the theistic evolution spectrum is the very popular view of Father Teilhard de Chardin. Now, Father Teilhard de Chardin actually identifies God with the universe and with the evolutionary process. So his system is really a kind of panentheism. So for Father de Chardin, God is identified with the matter. He makes it come alive. And then 
He brings different things into existence, destroys them, evolves something better, destroys that, evolves something better, and then after hundreds and hundreds of millions of years of destruction and evolution of new kinds of organisms, man evolves. And now, according to the Teyardians, evolution is going to continue to its last stage, is continuing to what he called the omega point. And we are going to have, according to them, a one world religion, what Teilhard de Chardin called a new Christianity completely based on evolution, and we will have a one world government to go along with it. Now, wherever a theistic evolutionist falls on this spectrum, whether he's at the Dr. Ken Miller end, or at the Father Teilhard de Chardin end, or anywhere in between, all of them deny a fundamental truth that is part of what God revealed about how he created the world. And that truth is, is called by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa, the first perfection of the universe. St. Thomas defines the first perfection of the universe as the completeness of the universe at its first founding. That means that all the different kinds of creatures, each one perfect according to its nature, all existed together with man and for man at the same time at the beginning of the world in perfect harmony. And all theistic evolutionists, wherever they fall on the spectrum, deny that truth. Now, the last time that the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, has published any authoritative document on the subject of evolution was way back in 1950 with the encyclical Humani Generis of Pope Pius XII. And it is very disturbing to hear Catholic intellectuals today, which unfortunately we often do, tell people of your generation that with Humani Generis, the Pope allowed Catholics to now believe and teach evolution. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If you read the encyclical for yourself, you will see that the Pope actually tells the bishops and theologians that they must teach that all of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which take us from creation to the Tower of Babel, is true history. He says the bishops and theologians must teach that every word in the Bible is true, whether it speaks about faith and morals or history or geography or natural science or anything else. The only permission that Pope Pius XII gives is for Catholic experts to examine the evidence for and against the evolutionary hypothesis. And everybody knows that permission to examine something is not the same as approval of what is being examined. The problem is that 71 years after Humani Generis, the Pope has not been obeyed. In the past 71 years, there has never been 
an open, honest debate between the defenders of the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation and the champions of theistic evolution. And we're convinced that when that debate finally occurs, evolution will be finished because it has always been a system that thrives on censorship and intimidation and cannot survive open debate. Now, what we're gonna do from this point forward is we're going to quickly review the church's authoritative teaching on the origins of man in the universe. Then we're going to see how a revolution was mounted against this fundamental doctrine. Then we're going to see how the leadership of the church rejected that challenge very forcefully in the beginning, but how eventually, in a very deceitful but clever way, the proponents of evolution were able to convince the majority of Catholic intellectuals that evolution was a sound scientific hypothesis and they had to reconcile it with the Catholic faith. And finally, we're going to get a glimpse, at least, of the catastrophic consequences of trying to combine these two contradictory accounts of the origins of man and the universe into one. So there's no better place to begin than with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you go through the four holy gospels and you highlight every place where our Lord speaks about anything in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, you will find that he always speaks of them as true history. We don't have time to go through all the verses, but for example, when our Lord speaks about Adam and Eve, he speaks of them as real people who were created in a state of perfect harmony at the beginning of creation. When he speaks about Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, he says that he lived at the foundation of the world. This is a phrase in the Bible that means the beginning of the universe, not just the beginning of human history. But most importantly, whenever our Lord worked his miracles, he always acted in the same way that he had acted in the beginning when with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he spoke the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain into existence. So for example, when our Lord went to the tomb of Lazarus, St. John tells us that Lazarus was going on four days a decomposing corpse. A decomposing corpse is just a disorganized mess of chemicals. It has no potential to become a living anything. But when our Lord went to the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out, in a split second, that disorganized mess of chemicals was raised up the body of a living, breathing human being. Now, every believing Jew knew that this is exactly what God did in the beginning. He took matter from the earth, which had no potential to become a human body, willed it to become the body of the perfect man, Adam, put a soul into him at the same time, breathed into him the breath of life, filled him with sanctifying grace, and willed him into existence in an instant, a perfect man. 
perfect in body, mind, and soul, and created in a very exalted state of holiness. So every believing Jew could see that our Lord Jesus Christ acted in the same way that God acted in the beginning. And that's how they knew that he's God in the flesh. The character of God does not change. As God acted in the beginning, that's how he acted when he walked the earth. And that's how God acts today through the sacraments and through the members of the mystical body of Christ where there is living faith. The evolutionists tell us that life came from non-life. We've never seen it, we never will. But on every Catholic altar in the whole world, life comes from non-life every day when the priest of God says, this is my body. There's no process. With the word, the reality happens. The character of God does not change. Now, unfortunately, most Catholic intellectuals today are telling your generation that while most of the church fathers took the sacred history of Genesis literally, there was an exception, St. Augustine. I don't know how many times we've heard this and read this, and it's been going on for more than 100 years. St. Augustine is constantly being pressed into service as some kind of proto-theistic evolutionist. And yet, if you read what he actually wrote, you will soon realize that he would have shed his last drop of blood for the literal historical truth of every word in the sacred history of Genesis. And in his work, The Literal Interpretation of Genesis, he flat out tells us, quote, the narrative in Genesis is not written in a literary style proper to allegory as in the Song of Songs, but from beginning to end in a style proper to history as in the books of Kings. Now look, when we read the books of Kings, it's a historical book. It's the word of God. If it says X happened and then Y happened, we know they happened exactly the way that it's written. As far as the fathers of the church were concerned, Genesis is a sacred history. And if Moses tells us X happened, Y happened, Z happened, we are to believe it. That's how they read it. The only point on which St. Augustine did not follow the rest of the church fathers in taking the literal and obvious sense was in the meaning of day in Genesis 1. And I don't have time to get into the whole explanation of it, but if you go to our website, we have a very thorough explanation. And basically the simple reason is he didn't have a perfect translation of the Hebrew text of Genesis. He was relying on what's called the Vetus Latina, the old Latin translation. And in that translation, it appears there's a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 if you take the days of Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour days. In St. Jerome's translation, which became the official translation of the Catholic Church, there is no contradiction at all. But that's the only point on which St. Augustine differed from the rest of the fathers. 
And he didn't opt for long ages of time. His reconciliation was to say that God created everything instantaneously and then revealed the work of creation to the angels in six installments, which correspond to the six days of creation. So there is absolutely no credible way to press St. Augustine into service as a proto-theistic evolutionist. Now, two ecumenical councils, Trent and Vatican I, defined that when all the fathers agree on any interpretation of scripture that pertains to a doctrine of faith or morals, that is the truth and we have to believe it. And this is the unanimous teaching, the unanimous interpretation of all the fathers, including St. Augustine, on Genesis 1, summed up very beautifully by St. Isaac the Syrian. He writes, God, solely by his goodwill, not through any kind of natural process, suddenly, not over long eons of time, brought everything, not just hydrogen, helium, and lithium at the moment of the alleged Big Bang, from non-being into being, and everything stood before him in perfection, not on its way to some omega point in the future, but perfect and complete and harmonious when it came forth from God in the beginning. That is the teaching of all the fathers of the church on Genesis 1, including St. Augustine. And the irony of trying to press St. Augustine into service as the proto-theistic evolutionist it, is that he is the most eloquent person refuting the premises of the theistic evolutionists. And here is a beautiful example from his work, The City of God, which is the mature masterpiece at the end of his theological career. Listen to what he says. He says, the creation of Eve, God did as God. Well, there's no denying that. You don't walk down the sidewalk in Steubenville and see women popping out of the sides of men on a regular basis. So he goes on. Some people use the standards of their own daily experience to measure the power and wisdom of God, by which he has the knowledge and the ability to make seeds even without seeds. And so they regard the account of man's creation as fable, not fact. And because the first created works are beyond their experience, they adopt a skeptical attitude. He's just totally refuted the mentality that drives theistic evolution. Because theistic evolutionists are always looking at the natural order of things, and they're judging what's written in the first chapters of Genesis according to the standards of their experience in the natural world. St. Augustine is saying, you can't do that. You cannot evaluate the account of a supernatural creation in terms of natural processes. So he's actually the most eloquent critic of the premises that undergird every form of evolutionary thought. And all the fathers agreed with St. Augustine that Genesis is a sacred history recorded by Moses that God created all the different kinds of creatures instantly and immediately 
for us in our first parents. Not every breed of dog, of course. He created some wolf kind of creature which had the genetic potential to adapt to different kinds of, of environments and become the different species of wolves and probably coyotes and hyenas and every breed of dog from a chihuahua to a Great Dane, but that's not evolution. And they all believed and taught that God created Adam body and soul and Eve from Adam's side and placed them as the king and queen of a perfectly beautiful, complete and harmonious universe and that it was only the original sin of Adam that brought the human death and deformity and disease into the world. Now, it's also very distressing that so many Catholics of your generation are being told that the church fathers really didn't have any experience or knowledge of evolution, so they didn't see the need or necessity to reconcile it with the Catholic faith. But this is another egregious falsehood because the pagan world in the time of the apostles and church fathers was full of evolution. <laughs> there were pagan philosophers teaching that everything evolved over long ages of time, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Anaximander, who died around 550 BC, was teaching that we came from fish, which is what most Catholics are now taught in biology classes in Catholic schools and universities all over the world. It's nothing new. And what did the church fathers think of these evolutionary accounts of the origins of man and the universe? They considered them complete nonsense for two very good reasons. Number one, as you can see from this quotation from St. Basil the Great, they considered them nonsense because in every evolutionary account of the origins of man and the universe in the pagan world, what is less gave rise to what is more. The effect was greater than the cause. And the church fathers were very well grounded in sound philosophy, and they knew that that is nonsense, that's impossible. But the main reason why the fathers to a man considered these evolutionary accounts of the origins of man and the universe to be nonsense is because they were in such obvious and total contradiction to what God revealed about how he created the world. Now, not only did pagan philosophers in the patristic era promote evolution, we even have Lucretius who lived in the century before the birth of Christ articulating the idea of natural selection. Lucretius says, everything evolves over long ages of time through the same material processes that are going on now. But then he raises the question, how do we get the development of the higher life forms? He says, through the struggle for existence, the more fit prevail, and that's how you get this development of life. So even the idea of natural selection is not the original contribution of Charles Darwin. A pagan philosopher thought of it and wrote about it 2,000 years ago. And all the fathers of the church agreed with St. Augustine that in this creation had no one sinned, the world would have been filled and beautified with nature's good without exception. Think about that. 
How different would your generation be if every Catholic was taught that God created the world perfectly good, without death, without deformity, without disease, without struggle for existence, and that it was only sin that brought those things into the world. Well, one other thing the fathers and doctors all believed and taught is that the first human beings were not primitive. Adam and Eve were created genetically perfect. They were perfect in body, mind, and soul, and created in a very exalted state of holiness, so that the great mystical saints and doctors like St. Hildegard of Bingen, who were shown the work of creation, say that Adam and Eve shone like the sun, brighter than the sun. They were clothed in glory. In the Byzantine liturgy for the Feast of the Transfiguration, we actually pray, O oh God, who restored on Mount Tabor the nature that Adam lost. So the reason that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed is not that they were uninhibited. It's because they were clothed in glory. They could not even see their naked flesh until Adam sinned and the glory left them. And every father of the church agreed with St. Paul in Romans chapter 8 that with Adam's sin, not only was the entire earth affected, the entire universe was affected by the original sin of Adam on this earth. And St. Paul teaches that the entire universe was made subject to a mysterious bondage to decay because of the original sin of Adam on this earth, because this earth is the spiritual capital of the entire universe. Now, if we had time, we could go through all the liturgical traditions of the Catholic Church, all the writings of the fathers on Genesis, all the writings of the doctors, all the authoritative papal teachings on creation, and I could prove to you that all of them teach the same doctrine. We don't have time. We don't begin to have time. So I'm just going to show you one part of the common liturgical tradition of the Catholic Church, which teaches this doctrine so beautifully. And that is the iconographic tradition. You may know, or you may not know, that until the late Middle Ages, all sacred art was iconographic throughout the Catholic Church, pretty much without exception. And the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which is cited here in the Catechism, defined dogmatically in 787 AD that the holy icons approved by the bishops to be placed in the churches teach with authority in accordance with the word of God that is proclaimed from the pulpits. And if you know something about holy icons, you know that they are not primarily made to beautify the churches. They are primarily written 
to make present sacred realities. And so they have a certain form, and that form cannot change because the truth does not change. So every icon of the creation of Adam looks like this, and it is making present to the faithful the reality of how Adam was created, and it's perfectly obvious that the first Adam was created in the perfect image and likeness of the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no human evolution. Now these icons are from Monreale Cathedral in Sicily in the West. They're not from Greece or Russia or Serbia or someplace like that. And these were made, these were in a, in a cathedral that was made a metropolitan cathedral by the Pope at the end of the 12th century. And in a true Catholic icon of creation, you never see God the Father. That was a complete novelty of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. You see the eternal word through whom all things were made, speaking into existence the different kinds of creatures on the six days of creation. So here we have the icon of the fifth day of creation. We don't see reptiles sprouting wings and becoming birds. We don't see something like a cow going out into the ocean and becoming a whale. We see what cutting edge genetics tells us must have been the case, that God willed into existence the different kinds of creatures of the air and creatures of the sea with their complete genomes by willing them into existence. And this is the most important traditional icon, icon of creation, because this makes present the reality that all theistic evolutionists deny. This is the icon of the seventh day. And what this shows so beautifully is that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in a very exalted state of holiness, where until they gave in to the temptation of Satan, all they wanted to do was love God with every thought, every word, every action. So God, who had made everything for us and our first parents, could rest in them, and everything else in the entire universe was subject to them, except, of course, for the rebel angels. But they could not touch a blade of grass as long as Adam remained subject to the will of the Most Holy Trinity. So why aren't Catholic young people being taught this fundamental doctrine that was handed down from the apostles? Because most of them are being told what the Jesuit priests at Princeton University basically told me. Moses, the church fathers, they were wise, holy, learned, but they didn't have our advanced scientific knowledge. They didn't have our technology. They couldn't have understood all the complexities of Big Bang cosmology or evolutionary biology. And like most young people, when I was 18 years old and was given this kind of argument, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. But somewhere in the depths of my being, I could never really accept it. And eventually, by the grace of God, I came to the realization that this claim is one of the most ridiculous, the most preposterous claims 
that human beings have ever come up with. And I can prove it to you with one slide. Here it is. You see, this is the icon of human evolution. And we like to say that the only thing that's scientific about this icon is the McDonald's man. <laughs> because when you study genetics, you find that mutations are not turning amoebas into human bodies. They are destroying the architecture of the genome. So we are not evolving into Superman. We are devolving into McDonald's man, or worse. But let's forget about McDonald's man for a moment, because that's not our focus. Just look at the rest of this icon and think about the simple fact that you do not need to know anything about science to understand what this icon is saying. You don't need to know anything about biology in order to understand what this icon is saying. You don't need to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And you can understand perfectly well what is being communicated. So do you see this idea that Moses and the church fathers and doctors, they couldn't have grasped evolution is completely absurd. If this is what God did, minus the McDonald's man, then he could have shown that to Moses and to St. Hildegard of Bingen and St. Bridget of Sweden and Venerable Maria of Agreda and all the great mystical saints and doctors who were shown the work of creation. And then on the walls of our cathedrals, we would have these beautiful icons of reptiles sprouting wings and becoming birds, land mammals going out into the ocean and becoming whales, and a common ancestor of chimps and humans turning into Adam. As our Lord looks on and beholds this wonderful evolutionary process that he set in motion. The reason we don't see this in our churches is not because the fathers and doctors could not grasp the complexities of evolution. It's because this is a fantasy invented, as we're going to see in a minute, by arrogant men who could not accept that there are some things that we cannot figure out by extrapolating from our limited realm of knowledge in a fallen world, things that we can only know through divine revelation. Now, if you're skeptical that what I'm presenting is the authentic Catholic doctrine of creation, you can put all your fears to rest in one step. Just go on the internet and look up the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism, because this is the most authoritative catechism in the entire history of the Catholic Church. It was mandated to be written during the Council of Trent when the Protestant Revolution was going on so that pastors could teach their illiterate people the dogmas of the faith in very clear, precise language. It became the gold standard for teaching and preaching the dogmas of the faith in the entire world for 350 years. It's still authoritative. It's the only one that's quoted in the New Catechism. It's quoted 20 times because it gives such beautiful, clear, precise definitions of the dogmas of the faith. So how does this catechism define the dogma of creation. Just go to the first article of the creed and you'll read this. The divinity created all things in the beginning. 
He spoke and they were made. He commanded and they were created. And it goes on to say, this is how God created the heavens and the earth. This is how he created all the different kinds of plants. This is how he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is how he created all the different kinds of animals. This is how he created Adam, body and soul, and Eve from Adam's side. And the council fathers made sure to tell the pastor that if he wants to teach his illiterate people how God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain, all he has to do is refer to what? To the sacred history of Genesis and teach that to his people. And these wise fathers wanted to make sure that every Catholic in the entire world was taught that when God finished creating Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation, he was finished because he created everything for us. And therefore, that's when the natural order, the order of providence began. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that in the Ten Commandments written by God himself on tablets of stone, there is only one where he says to remember. He doesn't say, remember to honor your parents. He doesn't say, remember not to steal, because that is written into our hearts as part of the natural law. We know we came from our parents. <laughs> we know we should honor them. We don't need to remember. But is there anything in the natural world that will tell you that God created everything in six days? No, there is not. So if you do not obey God's commandment to remember that we're supposed to work for six days and give the seventh day to God and rest, because he set the example for us by creating everything in six days and stopped creating on the seventh day, then we're going to start to try to explain how everything came to be in terms of what we can see. But what we can see are only creatures, natural processes. We are going to fall into idolatry. And so St. Peter, our first pope, was inspired by God to warn us about the evolution revolution. Almost 2,000 years ago, it's one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Bible. I hope you'll look it up, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, in the last days, far in the future, scoffers are going to come into the church, mocking the word of God in Genesis. He doesn't say that explicitly, but it is implicit in what he says next. And they're going to say, Things have always been the same from the beginning of creation. Now, you've been getting a quick review of the true teaching of the church on creation, so you know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. Things have not been the same from the beginning of the universe. Things have been somewhat the same since God finished the entire work of creation and the original sin occurred but they have not been the same from the beginning of the universe. And St. Peter says these scoffers will have to deliberately ignore the fact, not the pious belief, that it was the word of God that created the heavens and the earth and all they contain, not a natural process like a supernova explosion. 
And he says these scoffers are also going to have to ignore the fact that there was a divine judgment on the whole earth at the time of Noah's flood, which changed the face of the earth so completely that we can't even look at the earth as it is today and know what it looked like before Noah's flood, much less what it was like when God was creating everything in the beginning. And this is where St. Peter's prediction begins to be fulfilled. Not with Darwin, but with Rene Descartes and the so-called Enlightenment philosophers. You see, Rene Descartes was the first baptized Catholic scoffer to begin to be taken seriously when after leaving Catholic France for the Netherlands where he was free to live as he pleased without being hassled by the church authorities, after leading a very immoral life, especially against the sixth commandment, after dabbling in the occult, Rosicrucianism, Descartes revealed that he had three mystical dreams in which he said a spirit of truth possessed him and put him on the path to develop a wonderful new way of thinking that would change the way everybody thought. I wonder who that spirit of truth might have been because one of those wonderful new ideas that the spirit of truth, alias some demon from hell, put into the mind of Rene Descartes was this, that it's more reasonable to explain the origins of things in nature like the solar system or plants or animals or even the human body in terms of the same natural processes that are going on now. Instead of this strange idea that things just popped into existence in the beginning. Well, Descartes' books were put on the index of forbidden books because every theologian and worth his salt knew that this was nonsense. You can't explain a supernatural creation in terms of natural processes. But that didn't stop Descartes' dangerous errors from gradually insinuating themselves into the minds of virtually the entire intellectual elite of the Western world. And this is someone who saw what was coming. Blaise Pascal lived more or less at the same time as Descartes. He was every bit as great a genius, but unlike Descartes, Blaise Pascal actually loved our Lord Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. And he saw that if Descartes' false philosophy were ever widely accepted, it was going to do untold harm to humanity. And so he wrote in Pensee, I cannot forgive Descartes. In all his philosophy, he did his best to dispense with God. Oh, he could not avoid making him set the world in motion with a flip of his thumb, the big bang, if you will. After that, he had no more use for God. Isn't that amazing? Pascal saw... If you assume that things have always been the same from the beginning of the universe, then what do you need God for? All you need God for is just to start everything going. Then you can forget about him. Then you can study the universe on your own, extrapolate all the way back to the beginning, and explain everything for yourself. You don't need any revelation from God. And that's what sets the stage for the evolution revolution. Not Darwin yet. First, we need the geologists to come on the scene, especially Charles Lyell and James Hutton. 
Charles Lyell embraces this false philosophy of Descartes and becomes convinced that the present is the key to the past. That's logical, right? If things have always been the same from the beginning, then it would make perfect sense that the present is the key to the past. There's only one problem with that principle. It's not only wrong, it's the opposite of the truth. Because there are actually three supernatural historical realities that anybody has to take into consideration who wants to understand how we got to the present. Number one, the whole creation was supernatural. Number two, there was a divine judgment on the whole universe at the time of the original sin. Number three, there was another divine judgment on the whole earth at the time of Noah's flood. And all of those were singular events in the past. So Satan duped some of the most intelligent people walking the earth and got them to make something the guiding principle in all their work that was not only wrong, was the opposite of the truth. And so these gentlemen lived at a time when there were no facilities for doing real experimental research in sedimentology, where scientists can now empirically study how sediments are laid down in the real world. And so they imagined that great bodies of water came over the land, sediments settled out, the waters withdrew, the sediment hardened into rock, and then this went on over eons and eons of time. And if that were how sedimentary rocks form in the real world, and it isn't, then of course, when we look at the big sedimentary rock formations around the world, like the Grand Canyon, we know that those rocks at the top must have formed very recently compared to ones, the ones at the bottom, which must have formed eons and eons ago. And if that were true, and it isn't, then the fossils in the rocks would seem to tell the story of life developing from the simpler to the more complex, from the fish, to the amphibian, to the reptile, to the bird, to the mammal, and finally to man, and that's how we get Darwin. Darwin's wild conjectures in biology are completely based on Lyle and Hutton's wild speculation in geology, which is totally based on Descartes' false philosophy that he got from the spirit of truth, alias some demon from hell. It is a house of cards but that's how we get the tree of death. And even though this adorns the biology textbooks of Catholic schools and universities all over the world, it should never be called the tree of life because it took the God, little g, of evolution 550 plus million years of death and destruction to get from the bottom to the top of the tree so that we could have human evolution. Now, this is all very depressing. So before we take our break, I want to let you know that our Blessed Mother loves us so much that she came down to earth on the eve of the publication of Darwin's book, Origin of Species, to give the lie to this diabolical thesis of human evolution. You remember at Lourdes, 1858, she came 18 times to St. Bernadette. And finally, on March 25th, she answered St. Bernadette and told her, I am the Immaculate Conception. Now, it was St. Maximilian Kolbe who meditated on these words all his life. And the last thing that he wrote 
or dictated before they took him to Auschwitz was on the meaning of these words. And he realized after all those decades of meditating and praying over this, that with these words, our blessed mother gave the lie to the diabolical thesis of human evolution. And this is how he explains it. We have it on our website. It's so beautiful. He says, Adam was not conceived in the womb of a mother. He was created body and soul. He goes on. Eve was not conceived in the womb of a mother. She was created body and soul from Adam's side. He goes on. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not begin to exist in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. Therefore, he says, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the one and only unique immaculate conception. But think about this. If theistic evolution is true, if God, after hundreds of millions of years of death and destruction, evolved a subhuman primate to the point where he could conceive a human and put in a human soul, even theistic evolutionists are bound to accept the dogma of original sin. Therefore, Adam and Eve would have had to have been conceived without sin. But if that were the case, and the Blessed Virgin Mary would certainly have known, then she would have had to say to St. Bernadette, I am immaculate conception number three. Or maybe, I am an immaculate conception. But she didn't say that. She said, I am the one and only unique immaculate conception because Adam and Eve were not conceived. They were created, body and soul. I need first to introduce you to the best salesman for the evolutionary hypothesis, the most effective salesman. Let me introduce you to Mr. Ernst Haeckel, the German anatomist, the most effective salesman ever for the evolutionary hypothesis. And I'll show you how he, how he did it, how this man, more than any other person, was mainly responsible for converting most of the Catholic intellectuals in Europe to believe that they had to reconcile the Catholic faith with evolution. But what I want to share with you now is that this man, at the end of his life, admitted that when Darwin first came out with his book, Origin of Species, the whole leadership of the Catholic Church considered it to be complete garbage and that it took 40 or 50 years for him and his colleagues to convert the Catholic intellectuals to think differently. Who was the Pope when Darwin came out with Origin of Species? It was blessed Pope Pius IX. And during his pontificate, when Darwin came out with his book, there was a French doctor who wrote a critique of Darwin's Origin of Species. And the Pope wrote a recommendation for this book. And this is what he said, quote, evolution is a system which is so repugnant at once 
to history, to the tradition of all the peoples, to exact science, to observed facts, and even to reason herself, it would seem to need no refutation. Did not alienation from God and the leaning toward materialism due to depravity eagerly seek a support in all this tissue of fables? <laughs> so today, Catholic students all over the world are told that Genesis is a fable, <laughs> but the Pope who was reigning when Darwin came out with Origin of Species says that his hypothesis is a tissue of fables. We'll see who's right before the evening is done. 10 years later, the same Pope convened the first Vatican Council. The first Vatican Council reaffirmed the dogmatic decree of creation of the Fourth Lateran Council against the Albigensian Catharist heretics who believed in something amazingly like theistic evolution. But then they added an anathema. If anyone says that it is possible that to the dogmas declared by the church, a meaning must sometimes be attributed according to the progress of science, different from that which the church has understood and understands, let him be anathema. Well, we've seen how the church understood the dogma of creation. At the moment this anathema was handed down, the Catechism of Trent was mandated for teaching the faith throughout the entire world. So what this tells us is there's nothing that we are ever going to learn that is true in any area of natural science that will ever contradict the dogma of creation as it is defined in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Now, we've already seen that Pope Leo XIII was of the same mind as blessed Pope Pius IX. But did you know that in 1878, the Congregation of the Index, which was an arm of the magisterium at that time, reviewed a book by a Catholic theologian named Caverni, who had an interesting thesis. His thesis was, quote, it is possible to reconcile evolution with Christian doctrine, unquote. What was their verdict? Their verdict was, it is not possible, because in the words of Cardinal Ziliara, quote, with his system, Darwin destroys the bases of revelation and openly teaches pantheism and abject materialism, unquote. Now, I don't know how many times I have heard Catholic intellectuals say that Catholics never took the first chapters of Genesis literally. It was just the Protestant fundamentalists who started getting all worked up about it at the beginning of the 20th century. Look, this is an excerpt from the teacher's guide for the Baltimore Catechism that was mandated for use throughout the entire United States of America that was praised to the skies by dozens of bishops in the 20th century and was still being mandated to be used right up to Vatican II. And this is what it says. In the beginning, God created all things, something particular on each of the six days of creation. All these he called into existence by merely wishing for them. And we're supposed to believe that God allowed his church to teach this doctrine throughout the entire world for almost 2,000 years when he knew it was false. 
so that we could be enlightened by godless scientists who hated the church and wanted to destroy her? Well, St. Pius X saw what was on the horizon. He tried to warn us. In the encyclical Pascendi, he says, we now have in the church the worst heresy in the history of Christianity, modernism, the synthesis of all heresies. But why is it that traditional Catholics will know that he said that modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, but very rarely are they told that in the very same document he says, evolution is, as it were, the principal doctrine of the modernists. If it's the worst of all heresies and we want to fight it, how are we going to do it if we don't identify its principal doctrine? Now, why is modernism the worst heresy? Because all previous heresies added something, subtracted something, twisted something, but left most of the faith intact. Modernism is different. Modernism is based on the premise that everything is evolving. And St. Pius X saw if these people get control, they are going to destroy everything. Because they're going to say, look, the liturgy that was good for our grandparents, it's not good for us anymore. We've evolved into a new situation. Look, the marriage law that was good 500 years ago, it's not adequate anymore. We've evolved to a new situation. And he saw they will destroy everything. And look at this. In 1907, he had to publish this document, Lamentabili Sane, in which he condemns a proposition, very interesting, quote, he condemns the proposition that, quote, they are free from all blame who treat lightly the condemnations passed by the sacred congregation of the index. Why did he need to say that? Remember, in 1878, Cardinal Ziliara said, it is not possible to reconcile evolution with Christian doctrine but now, at the beginning of the 20th century, all over Europe and North America, Catholic intellectuals were thumbing their noses at that. And that's why he had to publish that in Lamentabili Sani. And so, Ernst Haeckel says, at the beginning of the 20th century, that evolution's greatest triumph was not when a monkey turned into a man. It was when he and his buddies converted the leading Catholic intellectuals to believe that they had to reconcile evolution with the Catholic faith. These are his words. Our science of evolution won its greatest triumph when at the beginning of the 20th century, its most powerful opponents, the churches, especially the Catholic church, became reconciled to it and endeavored to bring their dogmas into line with it. Back in the 14th century, there was an ecumenical council, the Council of Vienne in 1312, which defined that the soul, the human soul, is the form 
of the body. Now, when we understand this dogmatic definition correctly, it is extremely powerful because what this is saying is that it is not our brain that coordinates all the organs and functions of the human body. It is our soul that coordinates the functioning of the brain and the heart and all the or other organs and systems of the body. Which means that when you work from this starting point, you understand very well that God in the beginning created Adam body and soul. He didn't just cobble his body together over millions of years part by part. And when the soul leaves the body and you have death, everything is going to shut down because the soul is animating all the organs and all the systems of the body. Now, we're going to see how the salesmen for evolution, especially Ernst Haeckel, were able to deceive brilliant Catholic intellectuals into thinking that they had to reconcile evolution with the Catholic faith. And so they began to think that what really makes us human is what? Is our brain. Why? Because according to the evolution mythology, some subhuman primates evolved, and then some of them didn't have those brain mutations, right? <laughs> but we did. So what really distinguishes us from the subhuman primates, according to this mythology, is our brain. Now, it is not a coincidence that when the geniuses at Harvard University realized that they wanted to do heart transplants and other transplants using organs that cannot be taken out of a dead body because they immediately start to disintegrate, they came up with the idea of brain death. Since it was the evolution of our brain that made us human and distinguished us from subhuman primates, therefore they said, well, they didn't consciously articulate that, but you can be sure it was in the background of their thinking. But they proposed that when the electrical activity in the brain drops below a certain threshold, the brain's not operating properly, you might as well say the person is dead, right? Because according to the evolutionary scenario, that's what made us human. So do you realize that if it were not for abandoning the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation and the traditional philosophical terminology that was used to define this dogma, we would not have human death as the criteria for, I mean, we would not have brain death as the criteria for human death in hospitals all over the world. But today, in hospitals all over the world, there are people who have a normal heartbeat, normal pulse, they're passing urine, they have 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit temperature, they are exchanging gas through their lungs, but because the electroencephalogram reading drops below a certain threshold, they are declared brain dead. And they are wheeled into the next room where their heart and other organs are extracted from them while they are alive. And the Pontifical Academy of Sciences 
has no problem with that at all because they're 100% evolutionist. This is a matter of spiritual and physical life and death. Now, even after the Protestant Revolution, the greatest natural scientists among our separated brethren continued to work within the framework that they had inherited from the Catholic Church. And so, for example, Sir William Harvey became the first scientist, the first natural scientist in recorded history to accurately describe the working of the circulatory system in the human body. But when he was asked how he made this amazing discovery, he said that he asked himself why the intelligent designer of the system would have designed the veins and the arteries and the chambers of the heart the way that he found them. So from that starting premise that everything in the system was designed with a purpose, he was able to formulate a hypothesis and then test it and determine how the circulatory system works in the human body. That's how scientific and medical research progresses. However, when Ernst Haeckel and the other promoters of Darwin's microbe to man evolution hypothesis came on the scene, they accomplished a complete revolution that affected the way most scientists and medical researchers operate. And I'm now going to show you how evolution won its greatest triumph, which remember was not turning a monkey into a man. It was converting the leading Catholic intellectuals to believe that they had to reconcile their Catholic faith with evolution. And here is a perfect example. This is Father John Augustine Zahm at Notre Dame University. Father Zahm was undoubtedly a brilliant man who lived an exemplary life in terms of his moral behavior and was extremely knowledgeable in just about every area of learning. But unfortunately, Father Zahm believed that, the, that Ernst Haeckel in particular had provided such overwhelming evidence for the truth of Darwin's hypothesis that he simply had to reconcile his faith with evolution. Now, if you read Father Zahm's book, Evolution and Dogma, which is available through Google Books, you'll see that in his summary of the scientific evidence for the hypothesis that a one-celled organism turned into a human body through the same material processes that are going on now, the proof that he devotes more time to than any other is this. These are the Ernst Haeckel forgeries where Ernst Haeckel drew a human embryo, copied it, and said that that was the embryo of the fish, the pig, the turtle, the chicken, and the salamander at the same stage of development. Now, Ernst Haeckel was called out by his academic peers, and he should have been banned from ever holding another academic position or writing another article in, a, in an academic journal. But instead, he just slightly modified his drawings 
but kept them basically the same. And so the idea became very widespread that the human embryo went through all the stages of evolution in the mother's womb, went through a, gill, a, a fish stage when we have gills, and then an amphibian stage, and then a reptile stage, and only then finally reached the human stage. Now, to see how widespread this belief was in this type of thinking, um, there was a uh, famous trial, which you probably heard about, the Scopes trial. The people of Tennessee had elected legislators, thank you, who had banned the teaching of human evolution in the public schools. So the forces of enlightenment set up a situation where they could come in and challenge this unjust law. And Clarence Darrow, the most famous attorney in the United States, came down to confront these ignorant Bible thumpers and defend the forces of enlightenment who wanted to teach evolution to every young person in the whole world. So Clarence Darrow went to the leading evolutionist scientists in the United States and deposed them so he had on hand the best evidence for Darwin's hypothesis. And one of the scientists that he deposed was a Professor Hackett at the University of Chicago who cited an anatomist named Wiedersheim who, ta who taught that there were 180 vestigial organs and features of the human body which were left over from an earlier stage of evolution. And so this idea that the, the human embryo uh, uh, continues to uh, carry in it the, um, these vestigial organs from the earlier stages of evolution began to be very widely held by leading scientists. And one of those organs that was mentioned at the Scopes trial was the vermiform appendix. Here we see an excerpt from a biology textbook in 1959, typical of biology textbooks that were being used all over the world. And look what it says. Science has found a number of useless organs among many animals. They must therefore be a vestige of a once useful part of the body. One example is the vermiform appendix, which not only is utterly useless in human beings, but which often causes great distress. So do you see what's happened? This is 100 years after Darwin's origin of species. And the leading scientists and medical researchers in the world are looking at the vermiform appendix. And because they don't understand its function, they're immediately assuming what? That it's a holdover from an earlier stage of evolution. Now, in spite of their blind faith in evolutionary mythology, not because of it, scientists and medical researchers eventually confronted so much evidence that the appendix is functional that articles started to appear in medical journals like this one showing that the appendix is part of our immune system. It's not useless. And today, any course in anatomy or physiology, in fact, I mean, back in the 
80s and 90s. Any course in anatomy or physiology worth its salt was teaching that the appendix is part of the lymphatic system. And the only reason why we can have the appendix removed from our bodies when we reach a certain age is because it performs its most important work in the period immediately after birth. But it is not a useless holdover from an earlier stage of evolution. Now, to see how this faith in evolutionary mythology blinds brilliant intellects and takes away their common sense, here we have a statement on the BBC Science and Nature homepage. At least I checked it a few years ago and it was still there. The BBC, as you may know, is the most intellectual, the most highbrow news source in the English-speaking world. After all, the people speak with British accents, so you know they must be extremely knowledgeable. <laughs> and if you go to their Science and Nature homepage, you will, you will probably still read this. It's been there. I've checked many times over the years. The appendix has no known function in humans. Evidence suggests that our evolutionary ancestors used their appendixes to digest tough food like tree bark, but we don't use ours in digestion now. Some scientists believe that the appendix will disappear from the human body. Well, I hope it doesn't because nobody's going to make it <laughs> out of the mother's womb without an appendix. But isn't it unbelievable that the most highbrow the most intellectual news source in the entire English-speaking world spouts out this nonsense decades after any course in, in anatomy or physiology worth its salt was teaching that the appendix is a vital part of our immune system. And notice this. This is the other side of the coin. During this whole period of time, we're talking more than 150 years, we have had doctors and emergency rooms witnessing the spectacle of people presenting themselves with problems of the appendix. And during this time, how many of these brilliant doctors and medical researchers ever asked the question, why are these people having all these problems with their appendix? You see, doctors who have gone and visited and lived with people who do not eat processed food, who lead a healthy lifestyle, have found that there is almost no disease of the appendix among those people. So wouldn't it have been nice if sometime during the last 150 plus years, some of these scientists had been working within the framework handed down to them from the Catholic Church and said, well, we know that God created Adam and Eve with an appendix, so obviously it's functional. So if we have hordes of people coming into doctor's offices and emergency rooms with diseases of the appendix, obviously something's wrong with the way that they're living. What is it? And then maybe they would have found out what was wrong with the diet and with the lifestyle of the people from industrialized city societies. And we might have been able to start doing something about it when it would really have made a difference. Here's another example, the tonsils. 
Scientists looked at the tonsils. They didn't understand what they were doing there. So they concluded what? They must be a useless holdover from an earlier stage of evolution. So when children had even a couple of infections of the tonsils, the verdict was, well, the tonsils are useless, might as well have them removed. So tonsillectomy became a surgery that was performed on millions of people beginning in the 1930s. Now, when there were polio outbreaks, doctors all over the world noticed something very interesting. They noticed that patients who had had their tonsils removed were much more likely to succumb to paralysis from polio than patients who hadn't had the tonsils removed. And that's because the tonsils are actually part of our immune system and they produce specific antibodies that protect us against the polio virus. But they didn't know that. They assumed that the tonsils were just a useless holdover from an earlier stage of evolution. So in spite of their faith in evolutionary mythology, not because of it, doctors and medical researchers eventually faced overwhelming evidence that the tonsils are at the front line of defense in our immune system and that they are absolutely important. Now, of course, again, the other side of the coin is during all this period when millions and millions of people like me were put under general anesthetic, major surgery to have tonsils removed when, when we had just one, maybe a couple of infections. Nobody was asking the question, why are so many people having problems with their tonsils, be it blocked airways or chronic infections? And here's a fascinating observation from an orthodontist. Quote, the soft tissues of the body grow to their genetic size, even when the bony structures do not. The skin, the tongue, the tonsils, and the nasal tissues grow to their genetic size, but when the nutrition is missing, the bony structures are compromised, so the face will have an excess of skin and musculature. The tongue and tonsils will be too large for the mouth. So you see, when we started eating processed food and not getting enough exercise, our jaws did not develop properly. And that is one of the main reasons why so many people are having the problems with the tonsils blocking the airways. It's not because the tonsils are not an important part of our body. Now, what did Pope Pius XII say to the Catholic intellectuals in Humani Generis? He did not say, you are now free to teach and believe evolution. He said, critically examine the claims of the evolutionary hypothesis. Who was doing that? And now I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that it was Ernst Haeckel's bogus proof that humans recapitulate or go through all the stages of evolution in the mother's womb that was the main body of evidence that convinced so many brilliant Catholic intellectuals that 
microbe to man evolution was a serious scientific hypothesis and that they had to reconcile it with their Catholic faith. 1959, 100 years after Darwin published Origin of Species, this man was the leading evolutionist, atheist, scientist, champion of molecules to man evolution in the whole world, Sir Julian Huxley. He was extremely influential in United Nations circles. My father knew him personally. He wrote the foreword for Teilhard de Chardin's book, The Phenomenon of Man. And on the 100th anniversary of Darwin's publication of Origin of Species, as the leading spokesman for evolutionary biologists all over the world, he lays it on the line. He says, embryology gives the most striking proof of evolution. And if you read the whole thing in context, he says, because we look at the embryo and we see that we go through a fish stage when we have gills, et cetera, et cetera. Now, fast forward 20 years. Here we have Father Karl Rahner, arguably the most influential Catholic theologian in Europe in the entire 20th century, maybe in the entire world. Nobody had more influence during Vatican II than Father Rahner. And in 1970, this is 20 years after Humani Generis, and 11 years after Sir Julian Huxley's pontifications that embryology gives the most striking proof for evolution, Father Runner goes into print and says that he's convinced that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. When I was in my mother's womb, I went through all the stages of evolution. I went through a fish stage when I had gills, I went through an amphibian stage and then a reptile stage when I had a tail etc. Now, did Father Rahner obey the exhortation of Pope Pius XII in Humani Generis? What about the whole host of Catholic intellectuals who were saying and writing exactly the same thing? They didn't obey the Pope. They didn't critically examine any of these pontifications they meekly assented to the consensus view in natural science. That ought to ring an alarm bell because I hope you can see that this was conditioning the Catholic intellectuals and church leaders to submit to the consensus view among the scientific experts. And today, what do we see? We see bishops of the Catholic Church allowing the empirical scientists to tell them if they can open the church, if they can give Holy Communion, how they can give Holy Communion. This is the conditioning that had to go before. There's no way we would be seeing the things that we see now if this conditioning had not taken place over a very long period of time. And just how good was Sir Julian Huxley's most striking proof that a one-celled organism turned into a human body through a natural process of evolution? Well, on the top row are Heckel's fraud. On the bottom row are the actual photographs of the human embryo 
and the embryos of the rabbit, the chicken, the turtle, the salamander, and the fish at the same stage of development. Now, it's obvious that the human embryo is quite distinct from all the other kinds of creatures, but it's also obvious that each of the other kinds of creatures is distinct from all the rest. This is completely contradictory to all the predictions of the leading evolutionists from Darwin to T.H. Huxley to Ernst Haeckel to Julian Huxley to Carl Sagan to Richard Dawkins and the rest, rest of them today. But it agrees perfectly with the sacred history of Genesis, where Moses tells us 10 times that God created each kind of creature to reproduce after its kind. And that's exactly what we see. But I am ashamed to tell you that this is a 21st century biology textbook co-authored by a prominent member of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And I have trouble telling his drawings apart from the Ernst Haeckel forgeries from the 19th century. Look at the caption. Co-authored by a prominent member of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, it reads, all vertebrates start out with an enlarged head region, gill slits, and a tail. This is complete garbage. What are called gill slits have nothing to do with breathing. They develop into the pharyngeal arches in different parts of our facial anatomy. We don't have a tail at any point. But what happens to students of your generation when they read this kind of thing in their biology textbooks in a Catholic school or university? They think evolution must be scientific. Genesis is the myth, evolution is the fact, when in reality, evolution is the fairy tale and Genesis is the sacred history. I wish that were as bad as it got, but it gets much worse. This man was raised in a very devout Protestant home here in the United States. When he went to university, he actually retained his faith in God for a little while, but the evolutionary indoctrination became too much, so he became an evolutionist, became an atheist, went to Harvard University, got a PhD, and founded a new science, the science of perversion. And this is how he would have rationalized it in so many words. Back in the Middle Ages, we had this idea that God created man as man and woman as woman. And by the very design of their bodies, you could tell that there are some kinds of actions that are natural, normal, and good, and other kinds of actions which are unnatural, abnormal, and evil. Well, Kinsey says, evolution's liberated us from that. Because now we can look at our cousins, the bonobos, the chimpanzees, the gorillas, and we see they do all these actions that back in the Middle Ages we thought were unnatural, abnormal, and, and evil. And thanks to evolution, now we know they're really natural, normal, and good. Believe it or not, with that as his premise, his pseudoscientific premise, he went to the Rockefeller Foundation, got a big grant of money, 
and launched the new science of perversion, where he got people from prison populations who were afflicted with various kinds of perversions, got them to do the things that they did, involved even innocent children, and then used his data to change the criminal code and the medical code and the psychiatric code. So today there are many places in the world where you can risk going to prison for saying that what is unnatural, abnormal, and evil is not natural, normal, and good. And don't think this hasn't had a very profound effect at the highest levels of the Holy Catholic Church. This is the conclusion of an article written by the rector of a Catholic seminary here in the Midwest at the height of the abuse that was going on that was not being reported anywhere at that time. And in, in the conclusion of this article, which Father Kuznick published in the Journal of the Catholic Theological Society of America, he reaches this conclusion, quote, at this time, the behavioral sciences have not identified any sexual expression that can be empirically demonstrated to be of itself in a culture-free way detrimental to a full human existence. So we have seminary rectors telling future priests and bishops, you know what? Empirical science has proven there's really nothing you can do that is really harmful. And so now we have the complete inversion of the right order of the sciences. Theology is supposed to be the queen of the sciences. Philosophy is her handmaid. They are supposed to tell all the lower sciences what are their proper bounds. Now we have rectors of Catholic seminaries letting empirical scientists tell them what is right and what is wrong. Bishop McHugh was put in charge of family life matters for the whole United States Bishops Conference. And he worked together with planned parenthood sex educators to develop mandatory sex education programs for all the Catholic schools in the United States. How is this possible? Well, once again, evolution holds the key. This statement here is a bit of gobbledygook. I'm gonna translate it into plain English, but I am not distorting his meaning in any way. Basically what he says here is this. He says that at this stage of evolution, we know that the union of man and woman is the normal way that children come into the world, but we can't rule out that there will be marvelous evolutionary breakthroughs in the future that will allow children to come into the world some other way. So do you see what's happened? Undoubtedly, when Bishop McHugh was in the seminary, in the 30s or 40s probably, his professors told him, gentlemen, we know now that Genesis is an exalted myth. Thanks to the advances of science, 
we now know that humans came into existence through the evolutionary process. So there went Bishop McHugh's faith that marriage was a divine institution, that God created Adam body and soul, created Eve from Adam's side, and by the very way that he created them, instituted marriage and united the procreative and unitive dimensions of the marital union. And so in his mind, he separated what God had joined together from the beginning. And this is what it culminates in. The Synod on Marriage and the Family. You remember Cardinal Baldessari was made the moderator of the Synod. And you remember that Pope Leo XIII wrote a whole encyclical on holy marriage and told the bishops of the whole world, you have to defend holy marriage on this foundation that God created one man for one woman for life from the beginning. I did not see one delegate reference what Pope Leo XIII said is the only foundation on which we can defend holy marriage. Instead, enormous amounts of time were spent discussing how can we find a way to give holy communion to people who were married in the church, they got divorced, they married again without an annulment, now they feel left out. How can we find a way to give them Holy Communion so they feel part of the church? And then a lot of other time was spent. We have these people, they're living in unnatural vice, but they wanna be part of the church. How can we find a way to give them Holy Communion so they don't feel excluded? And so understandably, members of the press were saying, your eminence, how can you be spending all this time talking about things which in the whole history of the church would never have been even given a moment's consideration? Ah, he said, quote, there's no reason to be scandalized that there is a cardinal or a theologian saying something different from the so-called common doctrine. This doesn't imply going against. It means reflecting because dogma has its own evolution. That is a development, not a change. So you see, if a reptile can turn into a bird, if something like a cow can turn into a whale, then I guess something that is called in the Bible a sin that cries to heaven for vengeance can turn into something that has positive attributes that we really ought to find a place in our communities. And look at this. Throughout that whole synod, Cardinal Pell was held up as one of the few members of the Curia who was trying to defend the traditional Catholic concept of marriage. But in a televised debate with Richard Dawkins, the leading atheist evolutionist in the world today, Cardinal Pell said this. The account of Adam and Eve is a very sophisticated mythology to try to explain the evil and the suffering in the world. It's certainly not a scientific truth. It's a religious story told for religious purposes. Well, Richard Dawkins had a field day with that. So the story of Adam and Eve was only symbolic. So to impress himself, 
Jesus had himself tortured and executed in vicarious punishment for a symbolic sin committed by a non-existent individual. And we wonder why we have a mass exodus of young people out of the Catholic Church. A few years ago, we gave a seminar in a Eastern Rite Catholic parish in Chicago, and the pastor was so excited, he actually called up his bishop because he knew that I had to drive back to Virginia through the state where his bishop resided. And he asked his bishop if he would give me an hour of his time so that I could share our information. And the bishop graciously agreed. And he gave me a whole hour of, of his time. And I shared with him some of the most powerful arguments, theological and natural science arguments. When I was done, he didn't have anything to say in objection to any of the evidence that I had presented, but he asked me this question. He said, but Mr. Owen, how could so many brilliant scientists be wrong? He just could not get over that hurdle. Now, we've already seen with the appendix, <laughs> with the tonsils, with the embryos, and I could go on and on and on, how many brilliant scientists were wrong? Most of them. But I'm going to give you one more example because it's so powerful. This is Dr. Jerry Coyne, one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the entire world. I think he got his PhD at Harvard. He's at the University of Chicago. And in a recent book, just about 10 years old, Why Evolution is True, he says that embryology still gives us a very striking proof for the truth of the evolutionary hypothesis. So I'm going to show you his proof, and I want you to watch his reasoning process very carefully. His proof is that every human embryo, every one of us in our mother's womb, had a transitory coat of hair. The technical name for it is lanugo. So Dr. Jerry Coyne, with his genius IQ, looks at this, and he says, there's no need for a human embryo to have a transitory coat of hair. It's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit in there. Now watch his reasoning. Lanugo can only be explained as a remnant of our primate ancestry. In other words, it must be a useless holdover from when we were covered with hair and swinging from the trees. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this how the greatest natural scientists who ever lived, all of whom took God at his word in the sacred history of Genesis and worked within the Catholic doctrine of creation framework, is this how they would have responded when they looked at the Lanugo? No, it is not. If Leonardo da Vinci was looking at this, and he didn't understand why the Lanugo was there. One thing he would never say is, this is useless. He would say, I may not be intelligent enough to understand what this is doing here, but I know that God created every organ and every feature of the body for a purpose, and my job is to investigate until I discover what that purpose is. That's how science 
and medical research progress. Evolution is the worst thing that ever happened to scientific and medical research. Because as soon as they hit something that they can't understand, they say, oh, it's just a useless holdover from the millions of years of evolution. Let's move on to something else. Well, if you have ever had the privilege of holding or even beholding a baby at term born into the world, and my wonderful wife has given us nine beautiful children, and I've been at all the births, and the last one when my wife was 45 came so fast, the midwife couldn't get there on time, I had to deliver him myself. So I've had this privilege nine times. And if you've had the privilege of seeing a newborn baby, you know that they come into the world covered with something that looks like yogurt. <laughs> the technical name for it is vernix caseosa, cheesy varnish. And this cheesy varnish not only makes it a lot easier for mom to have a natural delivery, it also protects the baby's skin in the mother's womb when she's floating in amniotic fluid for months at a time. But there was an engineering problem that had to be overcome. How do you keep something like yogurt on the smooth skin of a little baby when she's immersed in liquid for months at a time? Any ideas? Yes, the hair. If we had a five-year-old child here, I would ask her, and she would tell us, hair, the hair. And I'd say, well, Mary, you didn't go to Harvard. You don't have a PhD in biology. Why could you figure out in one minute what Dr. Jerry Coyne, with his genius IQ and his incredibly advanced education, still hasn't been able to figure out? It's because Mary is not blinded by a set of unreasonable evolutionary assumptions. And you know, it's amazing that years before Dr. Jerry Coyne went into print with Why Evolution is True, any course in human embryology worth its salt was teaching students that, quote, vernix caseosa is a culmination of sebaceous gland secretions and dead epidermal cells and the lanugo hair helps retain it on the outer skin surface. So you see, in our biology classrooms, in our science classrooms, people should be listening to the students and teachers breaking into psalms. God, you are so great. You designed this lanugo to keep the vernix caseosa on my body when I was literally immersed in the amniotic fluid in my mother's womb. You are so great, God. But that's not what we hear. You stand outside almost any biology classroom, in almost any Catholic high school or university in the entire Western world, and you are much more likely to hear this. Students, we are not like those ignorant fundamentalists who think that they can just open the book of Genesis and believe what they read. We Catholics have a much more sophisticated take on it. We have no problem with evolution. And students, this book by Dr. Jerry Coyne is excellent. I want you to take it home and read it, learn the material, because 
it will be on the test. You are far more likely to hear that than to hear the students and professors erupting into psalms and praising God for the wonderful work of creation that he did for us. So the last question I have to address, and then I have one slide and we're done. Why, if evolution is false, could Pope St. John Paul II and other recent popes have made so many statements favorable to the molecules to man and microbe to man evolution hypothesis? Well, there is a very good answer to that question, and it has two parts. Number one, every statement that Pope St. John Paul II or Pope Benedict XVI or any modern pope has made favorable to molecules to man evolution or microbe to man evolution as a scientific hypothesis was made of it as a hypothesis in natural science. If you go back and read Vatican I's definition of the doctrine of papal infallibility, you'll see that they were very precise in defining it. They say that this gift of infallibility is not given to the pope to define any new doctrine, but only to define a doctrine of faith or morals that is contained in the deposit of faith that was handed down from the apostles. And you will not find one statement by Pope St. John Paul II or any other modern pope where he finds evolution in the deposit of faith. The second reason is even more important. If you look at the statements that Pope St. John Paul II made when he wrote in the realm where he speaks with authority, you will find that he actually told the theologians and philosophers of the church to do certain things, which if they obeyed him, would lead to the complete rejection of the evolutionary hypothesis. Specifically, in Fides et Ratio, Pope St. John Paul II refers back to the exhortation of Pope Pius XII and Humani Generis, where he tells the Catholic scholars of the whole world, you must maintain the metaphysical principles of traditional Catholic philosophy when you examine the evolutionary hypothesis. Now, it is shocking that in the last 71 years, I can count on one hand the number of Catholic theologians and philosophers who deliberately set out to obey this exhortation and to take the metaphysical principles of traditional Catholic philosophy and apply them to the evolutionary hypothesis. We can take a certain pride in the fact that one who did is the American philosopher, theologian, Father Chad Ripperger. He actually obeyed Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Pius XII and wrote a book on metaphysics and evolution in which he does what they ask to be done. We have the book on our website 
as an e-book and as a hard, uh, as a printed book. I think I have one copy of it left on the table over there. But in this book, Father Ripperger, obeying the exhortations of Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Pius XII, takes the metaphysical principles of traditional Catholic philosophy and applies them to evolution to see if evolution can pass the test. Now, we don't have time to go through all the principles, but we don't need to, because these are fundamental principles of being and of common sense. So any hypothesis, any system of thought that violates any of these principles even once is bogus. You don't need to waste your time with it. So we're just going to take one of the principles and see how he applies it. And the principle we'll take is that no effect is greater than its cause. This is just common sense. If I have a balanced scale and I have five pound weight over here, and I put a two pound weight over here, it is not going to balance. Because if it did, the effect balancing the scale would be greater than the cause, which was putting two pounds opposite five pounds. That's all there is to it. Now, Father Ripperger shows that the true Catholic doctrine of creation is in perfect harmony with this principle, because God, who is the supreme being, brings into existence, by willing them into existence, all kinds of creatures that are lower in being than himself. So the effect is never greater than its cause. Well, what about evolution? Well, Father Ripperger shows us that when we actually examine evolution in light of this principle, we find that from beginning to end, it is one continuous series of violations of this principle. Think about it. We'll skip over the fact that you have to get something from nothing. Now we have some matter that is not alive, which somehow produces something that is alive. If that isn't the effect being greater than the cause, I don't know what is. But that's only the beginning. Now we have a one-celled organism. It's got to produce a multi-celled. We've never seen that. We never will, but it had to happen. Now we have something that can't swim. It has to produce a swimmer. The swimmer has to produce a walker. The walker has to produce a flyer, and on and on and on, so that literally from beginning to end, it's just a continuous series of violations of what Pope St. John Paul II in Fides et Ratio tells us is a fundamental principle of common sense which can never be violated even once. So why didn't every Catholic intellectual in the world, when Father Ripperger came out with his book, why didn't they all contact him and say, Father Chad, we are eternally indebted to you. Thank you for rescuing us from the intellectual, intellectual slavery that's held us in bondage for so many decades. Well, first of all, most of the Catholic intellectuals in the world still haven't heard of his book. But the second problem is, and we see this, is that those who have heard of his book, many of them will say something like this. Look, we're not like Richard Dawkins. We know that this all didn't happen all by itself. God, of course, had to provide that energy or that je ne sais quoi 
to make some of these changes happen. But do you see what they're doing? Anybody who says anything like that is no longer dealing with evolution as a natural science hypothesis. They're dealing with it as a religion because everyone from Darwin and company on down to today, they have been telling us that molecules to man evolution is a scientific hypothesis. That means it has to be able to explain everything we see without any recourse to God or any supernatural agency. The minute that they tell us that God is going to make it happen, is going to make it work, they are not dealing with science any longer. They are dealing with a religion. They are making God the savior of a bankrupt scientific hypothesis. And God did not come into this world to save evolution. He came into this world to save us from evolution, which we saw was holding much of the pagan world in bondage. So the time has come when we have to say enough. We want our children and our grandchildren to be given the full patrimony of the Catholic faith. And this is my last slide. This is Giotto's beautiful painting of the first sign that Jesus did, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. And Giotto has included a detail that would be easy to neglect, but St. John has this detail in his account. And that is that there were six containers of water at the wedding at Cana, not five, not 10, not three, six. Why? The fathers of the church, a number of them tell us that it is to remind us that the divine power by which our Lord Jesus Christ instantly changed six containers of ordinary water into the most wonderful wine that anybody had ever tasted that had all the appearance of having gone through a long natural history that actually never took place. That was the same divine power by which in the six days of creation, he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain. Think about it. Suppose we could take just a, a pint of that miraculous wine as soon as it was served and somehow bring it to a team of the greatest scientists and engineers, give them the best lab facilities, unlimited budget, 10 years, to figure out through scientific analysis the true age and origin of that wine. Now, they may be the smartest scientists and engineers who ever lived, but after 10 years, they're not going to be any closer to giving us the right answer than they were when they started. Because you cannot explain something that has a supernatural origin in terms of natural processes. But you see, it's exactly the same thing with the whole universe. You can be the smartest scientist who ever lived. You can have the best technology. You can study the universe for an indefinite period of time. You will never know the true age and origin of the universe and all the different kinds of creatures in terms of what we can observe in the natural order of things. 
In both cases, the only way that you can know the true age and origin of the wine at Kena at the moment it was served and the true age and origin of this universe in which we are living is by believing the truthful witnesses appointed by God to give us the truth, which would be St. John in the case of the wedding of Cana and the truthful witness Moses in the case of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain. So the bottom line is that a three-year-old child who hears the sacred history of Genesis and believes it knows what the scientist with 20 PhDs in every imaginable area of natural science will never know unless he submits and believes the testimony of the truthful witness Moses as it has been believed in the Holy Catholic Church from the beginning. I hope just from the few examples that I've given you, you can see what a disaster this has been, not only for the church, but for the world to think that we need to combine a totally bogus scientific hypothesis with God's revelation of how he created the world. But we don't expect you to take my word for anything that I've said, and I hope that you don't. But what I do hope and pray is this. I hope and pray that everyone in this room will make their own investigation. And if you conclude that what we are presenting in the Kobe Center is the truth, that you will get into the fight. Because our immediate objective is that every Catholic young person in the entire world will have at least one chance to hear a good defense of the true Catholic doctrine of creation that was handed down from the apostles. Because we have seen that Catholic young people who are given this truth when they're young, they do not lose the faith. They have a strong faith and they grow up to be very strong Catholics, whether as priests or religious or fathers and mothers of families or consecrated, single, whatever their calling is. But we've seen it so many times, it's beyond reckoning that the vast majority of Catholic young people who are taught theistic evolution, they're gone by the time they reach adulthood. So if we want to turn things around, this is something that we've got to do. But I have to, I said that was the last slide, but I have to make this the last slide because our Blessed Mother at Fatima obtained the greatest public miracle since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to prove that her message was urgent and true. And she promised us that her immaculate heart is going to triumph, that the Pope and the bishops will consecrate Russia by name to her immaculate heart, which has not happened, that Russia will be converted, which has not happened, and that a period of peace will be granted to the whole world, which has obviously not happened. And what we can do is to hasten the triumph of the Immaculate Heart is to live our consecration to Jesus through Mary in every moment of our life. 
So I hope that everyone of us can leave this place with that intention that we live this consecration in every thought, in every word, in every action, but that part of that will be to determine the truth with regard to the things that I've presented tonight. And that if you conclude that what we're defending is the truth, that you will get into the fight and join us in helping to restore the true Catholic doctrine of creation as the foundation of our holy Catholic faith. Thank you.